You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of foreign correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, I'm talking to Dennis Staunton in London about what Theresa May's visit to the US tells us about both the special relationship between the UK and the US and about Donald Trump's international philosophy. What's it with the war on the idea of multilateralism? For long the cornerstone of international relations. Lara Marlowe in Paris on the surprise outcome of the Socialist Party presidential primary last weekend. The presidency race is now dominated by political outsiders and a former prime minister who faces serious ethics charges. And Patsy McGarry will be with me to unravel an extraordinary row between Pope Francis and the ancient order of Malta. A row about condoms that says much about the broader struggle between progressives and conservatives in the church. Much of Donald Trump's frenetic first week in office has been devoted to domestic politics, from building walls, barring immigrants, appointing judges, firing an attorney general, to tearing down Obamacare. But the shape of his foreign policy is also beginning to emerge. His first visiting head of government, Theresa May, played shamelessly to his vanity and got back much of what she wanted, apparently. Dennis Staunton, she seemed, no matter how cringe-making her posturing, to have got the measure of the man and got at least one important commitment out of him on NATO – Yes, I mean, it's in a way, it's remarkable that uh, it should be uh, considered an achievement to uh, get an American president to agree that he backs NATO. But nonetheless, she did. And she kind of shoehorned that into the joint press conference. And there was no question, but it seemed like a good day for Theresa May when she was in Washington on Friday. And the previous day, she had uh, given the speech in Philadelphia, where she, uh, she really articulated traditional British uh, foreign policy, both in terms of the commitment to NATO, also saying that it continued to be in Britain's interest that the European Union should thrive even after Britain leaves, uh, taking a tough line on Russia, suggesting that uh, Donald Trump ought to uh, to move warily with uh, with Russia and with Vladimir Putin. And then, uh, you know, in the joint press conference, although some of the body language, as you say, was a bit cringe-making, the fact is that Donald Trump didn't say anything outrageous uh, during the press conference, and she managed to get most of her points across. And she also appeared to have got some kind of a hint of a shade of an understanding that there might be some kind of trade deal in the offing uh, for Britain after it leaves the European Union. Can she believe him, firstly? Because as soon as she was out the door, he was doing things which she um, afterwards made clear she didn't approve of. And on trade, although they seem to be singing off the same hymn sheet, it doesn't mean the UK will have it easy in in, uh, trade talks. Yes, I think that's right on trade that, uh, you know, given the transactional approach that Donald Trump takes to uh, all of these bilateral uh, relationships, uh, he regards it all as a zero-sum game. And uh, and, I, and there will be there are already a number of people in Parliament in London who are talking about some of the difficulties that could arise from any kind of trade deal with the United States, like, for example, food safety standards. They ask, would uh, Britain, for example, have to agree to import uh, American beef that's pumped full of hormones. Uh, they'd ask if they would have to allow uh, American healthcare companies to uh, operate some services in the National Health Service. There are all of these issues that uh, you know that, that could come up. So, and as you say, trade deals are more complicated than just uh, you know tariffs or uh, allowing each other's goods in or out of the country. So that could become more complicated as time goes on. 
Uh, you're also right when you say that uh, the visit uh, looked much less good, uh, more or less as soon as Theresa May left Washington. She flew from Washington to Ankara to see uh, 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 President Erdogan in Turkey. And uh, by the time she got there, uh, Donald Trump had issued this executive order banning uh, all refugees uh, for uh, the time being and uh, and uh, refusing entry to anybody from certain countries, from seven uh, majority Muslim countries. And so she was uh, caught on the hop. And it's one of the things about Theresa May is she's a very deliberate sort of person. And she's not terribly good at thinking on her feet if she hasn't actually read every brief. So she handled the question at the press conference in Turkey about this travel ban. She handled it very clumsily. And she just said, well, you know, American immigration policy is a matter for America and Britain's policy is a matter for Britain. But then later, as the storm started to gather, uh, once she got home, Downing Street had to toughen up the posture, saying that they uh, that they didn't approve of um, of Trump's action. And then also seeking various assurances that various uh, British people who had dual nationality with some of the seven named states, that they'd be all right in terms of getting uh, into the U.S. And there was, again, some confusion about all of that. So uh, what appeared to be a good day for um, Theresa May in Washington on Friday looked much less impressive by Sunday or Monday. And uh, and many people indeed are asking exactly the same question that you're asking. Can she trust anything that Donald Trump says? Partly, of course, because he changes his mind so often and contradicts himself. Um, and in terms of his other foreign policy pronouncements during the week, uh, there, there was, of course, the the issue of the wall with Mexico, uh, and, and he uh, effectively shredded uh, Mexico-U.S. Uh, relations uh, with cancelling the uh, presidential visit, and he ordered a new plan to crush ISIS. We, we thought he had a plan, a secret plan. Well, he's obviously looking for another one, and his national security team have a few weeks to come up with that, and it's not clear... Uh, what that involves, one of the things, of course, that it could involve is uh, deeper cooperation with Russia, which would alarm some of uh, Donald Trump's European allies. One of the things I think that has happened over the last few days since Donald Trump uh, went into the White House is that any excuse for wishful thinking on the part of America's European allies has evaporated. Uh, many people in Europe hoped that once uh, Trump uh, actually went into the White House, that the system or the reality would somehow curb uh, some of the enthusiasms that he had been expressing during the campaign, this tendency towards unilateralism, towards isolationism. But it seems that that's not the case. And most of the noises that he's been making since he went into uh, office have been underscoring this idea that he really is at best indifferent or at worst hostile both to the European Union, to NATO, and to the entire liberal post-war order that uh, America of course, uh, has since the war regarded as being its central foreign policy uh, interest. And so all of this network of alliances that America has had over the, uh, across the world, uh, Donald Trump appears to see these in uh, in very transactional terms. And, uh, you know, and all of his pronouncements about uh, people like the Europeans or the Japanese paying for their own defense, it looks like he uh, will very likely follow through on this. And I think the other uh, element uh, that has alarmed many Europeans is the way in which he clearly sees no uh, unity of values between America and some of its traditional allies. And so the way in which he said, he suggested that he um, 
would have just as much faith in, uh, in Vladimir Putin as he would in Angela Merkel. That really did ring alarm bells, I think, all around Europe. And I think that many people, uh, you know, who were optimistic uh, a week or two ago are feeling a lot more realistic now. I take your point completely about uh, the fear, the hope that, that perhaps office would constrain him. And the only area where we've seen him uh, going back on something that he'd stated before uh, is on, on the question of torture, where he boasted that he still favoured torture, but he was going to be constrained by his, his Secretary of Defence. Most crucially, yes. I, think, I think what we're seeing is the beginnings of a... There is a coherence to this, and on, on, on many fronts, a, a war against the idea of multilateralism, the idea that global security or trade or the rule of law are best handled by nations coming together in international organisations, whether it's the UN or the WTO or the World Court. Uh, and this, as you say, has been a cornerstone of international diplomacy since the Second World War. Yes, and I think part of this is, of course, that Donald Trump is a businessman and uh, he has prided himself always on his approach to making business deals. And in a business deal, if uh, if I'm selling you a car, uh, you know that you can walk away from the deal because you can buy a car from somebody else. That doesn't work like that in international diplomacy because there often isn't an alternative to whoever you're dealing with. And so, for example, if, uh, if Donald Trump uh, uh, destroys America's relationship with China, then uh, there isn't really a, a straightforward alternative uh, for him to go to. And these things can have very serious consequences. And it's particularly the case if, as you say, and it, it does appear to be uh, to be the way things are moving, if uh, Donald Trump is ready to uh, tear up the international order, tear up the system of alliances, and return to a kind of a 19th century idea of spheres of influence and uh, balance of power, where, uh, you know, where, where uh, all of these uh, traditional alliances simply have no purchase. And I think it is particularly important that he doesn't clearly see any identity of, uh, of values or of interests between uh, the United States and its traditional allies, particularly in Europe. And I think that may go for the United Kingdom, despite what he says, uh, and despite the sentimental attachment to the special relationship, that may you may find in the future that uh, that sentimentality doesn't count for all that much when uh, push comes to shove, or if there is really a conflict uh, between uh, Britain's interests and America's. Yeah, and one of the documents that, that has been leaked, uh, though we haven't seen it in its final version yet, uh, relates to the United Nations, where, where he's talking of, of uh, reducing American contributions very substantially, up to 40% cuts in, in, in peacekeeping. Uh, U.S. contributes about a fifth of all uh, the U.N. Uh, budget. Yes, and the United Nations, obviously, it's important to uh, to, to many countries uh, in Europe and elsewhere. It's particularly important to Britain because uh, Britain's uh, place on the permanent seat in the Security Council of the UN is part of what gives it uh, you know, a, a greater status than perhaps uh, its size or its military capacity even uh, would warrant. And so there are a number of areas where, uh, you know, where, where, where Donald Trump's policies are really going to to strike at very very fundamental national interests where Britain is concerned, and I think uh, you know the United Nations is one, the future of NATO and the commitment to NATO, and also the uh, the approach to uh, to European integration. I think those are others, and of course perhaps the first one which is likely to be a flashpoint is about Russia. During his joint press conference with Theresa May, Donald Trump didn't say very much about Russia. He was sounding quite agnostic about whether he was going to to be friends with Donald with uh, Vladimir Putin or not 
And clearly, during his conversation the following day on the phone with Vladimir Putin, they didn't speak about sanctions. But he has made clear uh, a number of times that he is willing to uh, lift uh, the sanctions that were imposed against Russia because of its actions in Ukraine in return for some other form of cooperation, perhaps in Syria against ISIS. And that would be something which uh, would open up a serious breach, I think, with, uh, with, uh, with all of his European allies and particularly with the United Kingdom. Thank you very much, Dennis. We'll take a break now and we'll be back shortly with Lara Marlowe in Paris. Hi, my name's Hugh Linehan and I just wanted to take a few seconds to tell you about the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. Every week I'm joined by our own expert analysts along with elected politicians and people who just have interesting political ideas. If you're interested in how the system works, how it could be made better and what effects politics really has on your life, join me every Wednesday for Inside Politics. You can find it on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. Over the weekend, some two million supporters of the French Socialist Party took part in the second round of its presidential primary. To the surprise of most, the left-wing Jeremy Corbyn candidate, Benoit Hamon, won by 58% to 48, 41% for former uh, Prime Minister Manuel Valls. Lara Marlowe, who is Hamon and why did the party rank and file endorse him? Well, Hamon is a frondeur, that is to say a rebel from the left of the party. Uh, he'd held several ministerial positions, uh, the highest ranking one as a Minister of Education in 2014. And he was forced to resign in August of 2014, along with Arnaud Montebourg and Montebourg's partner, uh, Aurélie Philippetti, who was then culture minister. And basically, they were all pushed out of the government because they disagreed with um, the government's liberal economic policies. They claimed that uh, the Valls government was imposing austerity on France, which it wasn't really, uh, and they blamed Angela Merkel and the EU for, for this and so on. So they left government, and then Amon, in what he was in theory with the majority, since he was a Socialist Party member, but he was a, 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 the, the founder for, for the years of the Valls um, prime ministership, were really a sort of opposition within the majority. And he shocked uh, President Hollande. He's a very likable, affable sort of guy, but he, he really shocked uh, Francois Hollande by signing on to a no-confidence measure last June over the, the labor law reform. So he was very much a rebel. He's very close to Martine Aubry, who's the, the mayor of Lille and the daughter of Jacques Delors, um, and he spent, he's been called the, the inquisitor of Hollande's five-year term. Now, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes jockeying and bargaining and, and negotiations going on because uh, the Hollande camp, the, the, the centrist or right-wing socialist, if you like, want Amon as the socialist candidate to uh, recognize their record in office, to say that they did a good job in office. And Amon isn't really ready to do this, at least not yet. He's going to see Hollande at the Elysee on Thursday. And there's a sort of, the, the deal would be Hollande will support Amon for president if Amon will say that Hollande did a good job. But I mean, I what, what, what is Hollande's support worth? Well, exactly. It, it could be the kiss of death. Um, if, if I were Benoit Hamon, I probably wouldn't want François Hollande's support at this point, because Hollande has broken all records for unpopularity, but he still apparently thinks that his stamp of approval would, would somehow help Hamon. The problem that Hamon has is that the, the socialist 
are staging a mass exodus from his camp to um, Emmanuel Macron, who, as you know, has a background in the social, how should I say, proximity to the socialists. He was an advisor to Hollande at the Elysee, and he was Hollande's economy minister, but he's never been a member of the Socialist Party, and he refused to participate in the Socialist primary. And at the moment, he's running, well, third, second, third in the, the polls. Uh, for president of France, and a lot of people think that he he will probably be the next president of France. So the socialists, rather than voting for their own candidate, want to vote for Macron because he has a sort of leftist sensibility, he has a social conscience, and they think it's much better to support a guy who actually has a chance than Armand, who obviously is not going to be elected president of France. Uh, and furthermore, their own ideology of uh, social democrats is much closer to that of Macron. So Amon is, is kind of caught now between the, the administration, Hollande, the Prime Minister Cazeneuve, uh, who are very reluctant to support him, and these um, parliamentarians, socialist parliamentarians, who are deserting en masse uh, to Macron. It's, it's very interesting the way the, the process of, of a sharp move to the left by the rank-and-file uh, Socialist Party members reflects uh, the same tendency in, in, in Britain, uh, which saw Jeremy Corbyn elected against the mainstream uh, candidates in, in, in that party. And it seems like the, that all of the, the currents in European politics uh, that are redefining uh, both the right and the centre ground and now the left are, are being replicated. Absolutely. And it's not just Britain. It's not just Jeremy Corbyn. It's uh, uh, Cyprus uh, with, with uh, Syriza in Greece. I think he would be the first one. Uh, Podemos basically taking the wind out of the Spanish Social Party, Socialist Party. Uh, you could even bring the uh, U.S. Uh, Democrats into it. A lot of people think of Bernie Sanders rather than um, Hillary Clinton had been candidate. Perhaps they would have defeated Donald Trump. So it looks like left wing or socialist parties all over the world really are moving to the left. The, the, the theory is we weren't left wing enough and that's why we lost. I mean, you remember that Francois Hollande was elected five years ago because he said, I hate finance. Finance is my adversary. And he somehow tricked the electorate into believing that he was on the far left with them, that he too was against capital and, and, and big money. And then he proceeded to govern like a very centrist um, social democrat. And he made, made friends with business, gave business, business a lot of money and so on. So there has been this this uh, what they call a procès en trahison, you know, they've, they've, been, they've been accusing him of, of um, treachery, of betrayal, all through his term of office. Uh, so, so that's part of it. It's part of a, a global trend, I think, because the right is moving further right, because you have people like Donald Trump and Marine Le Pen mm. doing so well. There's almost a reflex that, well, the left has to be more left-wing if the right is going to be more right-wing. But there are also conditions that are specific to France, which is the, a, a pretty, um, pretty pathetic term by François Hollande. And you wrote uh, in the Irish Times that the French politics is undergoing its greatest upheaval since the foundation of the Fifth Republic in in, in 1958. Uh, that's part of the same process. If we if we start to look at the broader uh, electoral uh, picture ahead of the presidential election, we're no longer talking about two main political groupings in France, but four. That's right, and and the the. 
two, the former two main political groupings, which were basically the, the heirs of General Charles de Gaulle, the, the Gaullist Party, which is now called LR, Les Républicains, uh, they and the Socialists were the two parties of government who alternated in power for the last several decades. And they're, they're really both on, on the verge of implosion at the moment. Um, it looks like François Fillon, the, the conservative candidate, may not even be able to stand because of the financial scandal. And the socialists, as, we, as we've just discussed, uh, are, are completely divided. They're, they're really splitting. So the two dominant, the, the two parties that look best poised uh, to win the presidential election are the Front National, the extreme right-wing uh, National Front, and Emmanuel Macron's group, which is called En Marche, which didn't even exist a year ago. So it's, it's quite extraordinary to have these two parties, the National Front, which were really pariahs until quite recently, and En Marche, which has just been invented out of nowhere, mm. um, really in the forefront of French politics and stronger than the two uh, traditional strong parties. The, what might be called the two establishment parties uh, exactly. are, are, are being marginalised. And people don't want the establishment. I mean, that's mm. what comes through over and over and over. And since last autumn, you've had the uh, Cécile Duflo, who was the, the Green leader. She got thrown out. They didn't want her as a candidate. Yeah. Uh, and then the Les Républicains, they got rid of uh, Nicolas Sarkozy and Alain Juppé, who were the best-placed um, politicians to become their presidential nominee. Uh, and then François Hollande was, was prevented from standing for re-election by opinion polls, which showed him to be just abysmally unpopular. Uh, and, and then Manuel Valls in the socialist primary was initially favored to win the nomination for the socialist. And he, he won, I mean, sorry, he lost, he was defeated, got only 41% of the vote. So over and over and over, the voters are saying, we don't want the establishment, we don't want your old politicians, we want something new, we want something different. And Emmanuel Macron's trick has been, although a former minister, in, in, in fact, has been to present himself as, as, as the outsider. But talk to me a bit about Fillon, his, his difficulties with his wife. Well, the poor wife, I don't think, is, is, is very much involved in the whole thing. I mean, she always gave the impression of being the sort of perfect housewife. She had five children, goes to mass. Uh, the priest in the local town in the south department uh, said she was, she was absolutely perfect, and thank God she never got involved in politics. And then suddenly, uh, six days ago, we learned from the Canard Enchaîné that Penelope Fillon was secretly a parliamentary assistant uh, for eight years. Uh, first for, um, for her husband, for François Fillon, Fillon sorry, when he was a, a member of the National Assembly. And then when he stepped down from the National Assembly to become a, a government minister, his replacement also put her on the payroll, and she earned a huge amount of money. She was paid 500,000 euro over eight years for being a parliamentary assistant. The problem is that nobody in the National Assembly ever saw her. She does not appear to have set foot there other than to listen to uh, her husband's speech as uh, his uh, general policy speech when he became prime minister. And even at home in, in the, the South Department, which is where Le Mans is in Western France, uh, nobody there knew she was working either. Uh, and she even said herself in interviews that she was proud to be a housewife and not to, not to have a job. So that's very, very fishy. And then she had a second um, job that's very suspicious, working for a, a millionaire called La Drette de la Charrière, who owns a magazine, a literary magazine called La Revue de Deux Mondes. 
And he paid her 100,000 euro for two years. She wrote two articles, which were uh, less than one page long each. Nice work um, if you can get it, Lara. Absolutely. I don't think we get paid that much for our Irish Times articles, do well, we, Patrick? I, I don't. I don't, anyway. <laughs> and tell me now, um, just just finally, touching on Marie Le Pen, we've, we've really talked about her in the past or, or already, um, but I'm intrigued by the to see whether there's any effect of Trump's victory. I mean, she was very much riding the tide of, of Trump's victory. But his first 10 days in office have surely not made him more popular and, and wouldn't exactly rebound to her credit. I have not seen any statements, uh, any disapproving statements by Marine Le Pen. Uh, certainly, for example, his uh, banning Muslims entering or, or citizens from certain predominantly Muslim countries entering the U.S., that would be very much in accord with what she wants to do in France. She wants to uh, virtually stop all immigration to France. Uh, she pra has praised his protectionist measures. That's exactly what she wants to do for France. She wants to prevent French jobs going abroad and punish French companies that go abroad. So I don't, I don't think she's found any fault with him so far. Uh, on the contrary, she, she gave an interview a few days ago to La Voix du Nord um, in northern France, where she said that, uh, no, she hadn't really been inspired by, Don uh, by Donald Trump, but that, on the contrary, it was Donald Trump who was putting her ideas and her policies into practice. Thank you very much, Lara. An internal row about the distribution of condoms through a, its aid organisation in Africa and Myanmar has sparked a confrontation between conservatives running the ancient sovereign military order of Malta and the reforming Pope Francis. But Patsy McGarry it's about more than condoms. According to the New York Times, what we have here is a full-scale proxy war between the Pope and the Vatican traditionalists. Absolutely correct, Paddy, in, in one in sentence. Um, I mean, one of the main figures involved in this row is Cardinal Richard Burke, an Irish-American cardinal who had been on the Congregation for Clergy in Rome when Pope Francis took over. He'd also been the main man in the Signatura, which is the uh, Papal or Vatican's Supreme Court. And he was removed from both by Pope Francis. Um, he was one of the main opposition to uh, mooted changes at the two synods that took place on the family in 2014 and 2015, which led to uh, Pope Francis' encyclical Amoris Laetitia last April. And in that encyclical, there is a certain um, studied ambiguity on the issue of whether or not divorce and remarried Catholics should be allowed communion. And it's deliberately left in such an ambiguous fashion because there was tremendous sympathy uh, by the progressive element at the Synod on the Family in 2014 and 2015 for innocent parties in marriage breakups who got, became involved in second relationships. And it was recognised that this is a very, very complex issue that wasn't really amenable to a, a rigid or single line. And influenced heavily by Cardinal Casper, the German Pope, who's written about this, Pope Francis left the language ambiguous for interpretation, if you like, at a local level and for application pastorally at a local level. This upset the traditionalists led by people like Cardinal Burke hugely, who felt it was a moving away from the teaching of the church under Pope John Paul more recently, but going back further, that uh, divorced and remarried Catholics must never be allowed to receive communion if they're in a sexual relationship. And when Burke was moved from uh, the Vatican Supreme Court, he was moved to what many people thought was a backwater where he presumably couldn't do any harm, which was as a patron of the Order of Malta. Indeed. But it didn't prove to be the case. 
Well, he did find, or certainly the, not, not long after his appointment there, this row began to brew on the issue of condoms. And even within that context, um, the Grand Chancellor Festing, who's actually an Englishman, um, took the conservative or traditional line. But his deputy, a German aristocrat, uh, was interpreted or believed to have a more liberal approach to these issues. And they found that charities involving the Order of Malta in Burma or Myanmar, as, you know, as it's now called, and some parts of Africa, had been distributing condoms, uh, or that the, the order had been associated with charities which were doing so, which, of course is totally against the teaching of the Catholic Church, who doesn't believe, even in the instances of the non-spreading of disease, that condoms should be promoted or any artificial means of contraception in any circumstances. So the traditionalists um, got to work on this within the Order of Malta. Um, This man was fired last November. Um, This is Brusselager. That's right, yeah. Um, There was concern in the Vatican about this. Pope Francis set up a particular commission to look at it. And uh, Festing said he wouldn't recognise the commission and wouldn't cooperate with that commission, which uh, surprised a lot of people because really it was an act of open defiance against the direction of the Pope. And the Pope got to, uh, became involved and, uh, I mean, the commission did report earlier this month. The Pope then, before the commission apparently reported, accepted the resignation of the Grand Chancellor, who has taken a vow of obedience to the Pope. All senior figures in the Order of Malta, though it is an independent, sovereign, non-geographic state, if you like, within the the, uh, the Vatican, and indeed recognised so more widely, uh, all his leaders take a vow of obedience to the Pope. So last week, Pope Francis accepted the resignation of the Grand Chancellor and has appointed a papal delegate to act as interim Grand Chancellor until a new one is elected. It's, it's an interesting situation. I mean, the Order of Malta is one of the oldest type chivalric organisations in the world. It goes back to the Crusades. It was founded in 1048 to help, if you like, or assist uh, with Christians who were injured or subject to, or became subject to disease in the Holy Land when allegedly fighting to liberate it from Muslim forces, etc. And has continued in existence since. But it has and is recognised by the UN as a permanent observer. It has rec- is recognised as a sovereign state in its own right. It's represented to approximately 106 countries worldwide. So it's a bit of an anomaly, not unlike the Vatican city-state itself. It, it is very peculiar uh, sort of sui generis organisation that is unlike unlike any other one. But it's very significant. I mean, largely a charitable organisation, as you say, with 13,500 members, 25,000 employees, and something like 80,000 volunteers attached worldwide. to its various uh, groups uh, worldwide. So it's not an insignificant force. No, but and you do see it here in Ireland. I mean, at uh, big sporting occasions or indeed any big... Uh, a, a situation where there is a large gathering of people, you'll see the Order of Malta there ready to provide medical assistance in case of injury. They're a voluntary organisation. I mean, here in Ireland, uh, they wouldn't really be involved with the high politics which we've just been talking about. Mm-hmm. They'd be simply a charitable organisation involving mainly Catholics. But is what is the religious character of the organisation? Does, does it have a specifically religious character? Well, it's, it's a Catholic organisation, but it wouldn't be fairly... I mean, I think that the people who join it join it basically to be of assistance and to help rather than out of any sort of uh, severe or, or, or rigid dogmatic outlook. Certainly that would be the case in, in, in Ireland where I would suspect the vast majority of those 80,000 volunteers are concerned. They're just people who want to help. And this, this battle between uh, the Pope and uh, Cardinal Burke, uh, it's been pretty decisively uh, stamped a victory for for the pope i mean it's it's it he is in this particular battle has has uh, sidelined uh, burke quite, quite effectively in this particular battle certainly but there's a wider battle at work here also 
Paddy, because last November, uh, Cardinal Burke and three other traditionalist cardinals retired, actually, mainly, um, did, did threw down the gauntlet to Pope Francis over his encyclical of last April, basically saying it was confusing people. And they posed a series of questions to which they wanted him to give yes or no answers to clear up this alleged confusion. Uh, Cardinal Mueller, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith prefect, intervened and said that it was outrageous of them to do this particularly for them to go public to, to try and sow division in the church and said that there was nothing whatsoever that was doc- doctrinally inaccurate or wrong with the encyclical of April of last year. Uh, Pope Francis absolutely just ignored them and uh, um, just he ignored them and hoping they'd go away. Then Cardinal Burke said they were thinking of um, th- um, basically moving a correction, which is a particular device that hasn't been used theologically in Rome since the 1330s when it was used against Pope John XXII because he alleged that souls could uh, could not see God to the day of the last judgment whereas it was Catholic teaching that a soul could see God or behold the beatific vision uh, on death and on arriving in heaven. I mean, it's very <laughs> up there. And where are we on that now? Uh, well, the, uh, I don't know. It hasn't been discussed for centuries <laughs> in Catholic theology. The best of my knowledge, Paddy, uh, 1330 is a long way away, but not where some traditionalists in the church are concerned, clearly. So Cardinal Burke is, is waging, and his three colleagues, three retired colleagues, waging this battle to the end. And Cardinal Burke is not an old cardinal. In, he's in his 60s. He's very, very traditional. He's a man who favours very florid, Liturgies. He's a regular visitor to Ireland, has participated in conferences at Photo Island uh, off Cork nearly every summer over recent years. Um, he was famously criticised for wearing vestments valued at $30,000 in one particular very florid liturgy. He's very traditionalist. I mean, he would be of such a tradition that he'd probably face... Uh, pre, be pre-Vatican Council uh, and a favour saying the Mass at the back to the congregation. Thank you very much, Pat. Thanks to Dennis Staunton, Lara Marlowe and Patsy McGarry and our producer Declan Conlon. I'm Patrick Smith. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.